Everybody have a good week? Yeah? 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 Okay. All right. Well, we've got a, a variety of responses there. I understand that. Hopefully, um, your week's going to get better through this message. We are now in the seventh week of our series called Do You Know Him? Where we've been doing just that. We've been getting to know God. And um, as we uncover his character, as we uncover his traits, what makes him who he is, we want to step into a relationship with him. That's really what this is about. And so my hope is that as we get to know him intellectually, as we grow in the knowledge of who he is, that then makes it easier for us to step into a relationship with him. And that is a logic that we use in our everyday lives, right? With our friends, with our family, we first get to know them intellectually, the decisions they make, the traits that they have, so that we can then step into a relationship with them. And so that's really what this is about. And over the last seven weeks, I think we're making progress. I think we're headed in the right direction. And so I'm excited to see where this ends up. Now, last week, um, I gave you guys a little bit of an insight into what we're gonna be covering over the next few weeks. So just a quick recap for those that weren't here. Last week, we talked about God's goodness. And so we covered this high level of how God is good and how that's prevalent, how that's consistent throughout scripture. And yet um, what we see theologically is that that's broken down into many specific traits of his goodness. And so we talked about one of those last week. We talked about mercy and how that shows that God is good to us. We talked about how that relates to us, how that relates to God. And so today we're gonna do the same thing. We're gonna talk about one of God's traits that really proves that he is a good God. Now, before I even get into it, I want to read a really important scripture that we see in the Bible. Because this is what's going on. We're in the book of Exodus here. And Moses is speaking with God. And so God says, I'm going to pass by you. And as God is passing by him, he actually proclaims some things about himself. I mean, if you wanna know the identity of God, why don't we just go straight to the source, right? So this is what we read in Exodus 34. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, there's a lot to unpack just in that one scripture. First off, you might have noticed last week we talked about how there's a balance in play here of God's goodness and his severity, right? And so we see that here from the words that God is speaking. We see that he's listing off good qualities about himself, but then he finishes by saying, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. We see that balance once again at play. But as we unroll this, what we're seeing is God is proclaiming these good things about himself. We see his goodness really rising to the surface as he tells us about his mercy. Like we discussed last week, he tells us that he's abounding in love. He tells us that he's patient, he's slow to anger, that he's faithful, that he's consistent. But really what wraps this entire scripture up, what really brings it to a total is what we're gonna talk about today. Now, I have to first off just be really honest and transparent with you guys. I can do that, right? We're in a, a safe place here. I can be transparent. Um, this was a struggle this week for me to put this message together. It was, um, it was an ongoing battle that I couldn't seem to overcome. I, I really struggled through it. And here's why. Because the topic we're talking about today is something that changed my life. 
It's something that changed my whole perspective of God, the way that I look at him, the way that I perceive him. And it was the first time that I was able to step into a relationship with him. 100%, no doubt about it, it changed my life. Now you might say, well, wouldn't that make it easy to talk about? You know, it had that profound an impact on you. But throughout the week, I just was getting overwhelmed with the weight of this message. And, and what happened is fear began to creep up that I might not be able to communicate it properly to a group of people that I think really needs to hear it. And then anytime I'd get past that, I would just get a fresh reminder of what this topic really meant. And so I spent some time crying and breaking down on my own. It was a struggle. It was a struggle. And the reason I think it's important to tell you guys that is because it was just such a reminder to me that I have to rely on God. Because here's the thing, if you're relying on me to get up here and properly communicate this to you and to open up your eyes and your hearts to this, I will fail you. I will desperately, embarrassingly fail you. But I think God wants to speak to us. I think he wants to talk to us today. And so I just wanna get out of the way and allow him to move. And so if if we could, before I even get into today's content, can we just pray together? We're we're a group of people who are seeking after God. I wanna just pray together that he would speak to us, that we would open up our hearts and our minds to receive whatever he has for us. You never know today could change your life if God speaks to you the way he wants to. So can we focus in on that? Can we just, as a group, begin to pray? Lord, we thank you so much for bringing us here today into your presence, that we get to come and feel you and know that you're in the room with us. I pray right now that you would speak through me that you would speak your words to your people, that they would open up their hearts and their minds to receive whatever it is you have for them, that they would focus in like never before on what it is that you wanna speak into their lives. God, we invite you into this place right now to move, to speak, to have your will, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you so much for doing that. So I'm not gonna tease this any longer. Let's get into it. So today we're talking about God's grace, okay? Now, when we talk about God's grace, I have to be honest, I don't even know where to start, really. There's no like clear starting point here. I've heard many definitions of God's grace, um, unmerited favor, um, unearned approval, God's goodness to those that deserve only punishment. I've heard all of these things that make sense to me. But really the best way that I've understood it, the way that I've really been able to apply it to my life is through illustration. And so luckily God gives us plenty of those throughout the Bible to work off of as it relates to grace. So that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna walk through one of those illustrations and see God's grace come to the surface, which by the way is different from what we've done throughout this series. We've kind of been hopping around the Bible showing God's identity throughout. Today we're gonna stick to one particular segment and see what he has to say to us, okay? So we're gonna walk through Luke 15. It's the book of Luke chapter 15. If you don't know Luke 15, there's a good chance you've heard the gist of it because this is where Jesus gives his infamous prodigal son parable. Now, don't roll your eyes quite yet. I'm sure you've heard this taught before. But we're gonna try to take a different spin. We're gonna try to look at it from a different angle. So what we're gonna do is, we're gonna spend most of our time talking about the context of the story rather than the parable itself because I think in the context is where we really see God's grace at work, 
okay? So let's get into this Luke 15, right out of the gate. We already see the context because we're about to learn who is in the audience, who is there to listen to Jesus speak. And so verse one, it says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. So let's stop here. We see two groups of people in the crowd ready to listen to Jesus. We see the tax collectors and the sinners. Now let's talk about these folks for a little bit. Let's start with the tax collectors. Now, you may have heard before that back in the historical context, the tax collectors were hated. I mean, they were despised. And, and partly that's because they were just cheats. You know, they would ask for more money than was necessary. They would pocket the difference. They were just cheats. And that was a common occurrence of that day. But if you just stop there, you're actually overlooking the real tension at play between the people and the tax collectors. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the history during Jesus's time, but this is what's going on. We've got the Roman Empire in dominant form, dominant form. They are ruling, they are governing all the way from England to India. This massive stretch of land that the Roman Empire is ruling. And really, it would probably be better put abusing. The types of things that they did to govern was disgusting. It was appalling. They were brutal. I mean, you go and read the historical accounts of that day, the brutality, the bloodshed, it would turn your stomach. Now, if you would just go with me for a second, if in today's day and age, we had a situation where there's a group of people rebelling against the rest of the country, this cult, this sect, whatever it might be, and they were kind of gaining some momentum and it was getting to a dangerous level. It really wouldn't take our government that long to handle that situation, right? I mean, a couple of phone calls, some helicopters, a fighter jet, and they could probably contain that or handle that however they see fit. We're talking about a matter of hours, right? But when we go back to 28 AD, thousands of years ago, if there was a situation where a group of people was rebelling against the Roman Empire, it could take months, it could take years for them to seek out these people and handle them accordingly. So they didn't have tanks, they didn't have helicopters, they didn't have fighter jets. What they had was a massive, massive army. Massive army. They had boots on the ground as far widespread as possible because they needed to make sure that they upheld their power. Now, when you have a massive army, what you also have to have is a massive bank account. You have to train these people. You have to give them food. You have to give them weapons and equipment. There's a lot of money that goes into that. So what is funding that army? It's taxes. So here's what you really have going on. You've got these tax collectors running around your neighborhood. They're getting on you about paying your taxes, about giving them money. That then goes to a government that is oppressing and abusing you and your family. There's really no modern day equivalence of that. It would literally be like you giving money to your neighbor so that the government can come and do unspeakable things to your children, to your spouse, enslave you into the customs of that day. So when we see the tax collectors running around the biblical narrative, this is how people saw them. They were appalling. They hated them. And they're in the audience as Jesus is about to speak. Now, along with them, it says there were the sinners. Now, initially, you might think, well, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? And that's true. But back in this time frame, sinners were like a specific class of people. I mean, these were like the truly afflicted worst of the worst. We're, we're talking about sick and diseased and deformed. 
uh, dirty and homeless and prostitutes among the group. I mean, this was a special set-apart group of people. So this is who you have in the crowd, the tax collectors and the sinners, as Jesus is about to speak. Now we go on to verse two, and this is what it says. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. So now we know we have the tax collectors and the sinners in the room. These people that are detestable, people hated them, couldn't stand them, didn't wanna be around them. And now we learn on the other side of the room we have the Pharisees. Now, we've talked about the Pharisees before, but just a quick refresher. These guys were the religious elite of the day. I mean, the elite of the elite. Uh, Let's just be honest about it. They knew more about the Bible than you do. They prayed more than you do. They fasted more than you do. They were better than you. They, They ate, they drank, they lived religion. That was their identity. We've talked about this before, but they actually had memorized the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized them. You go read one chapter of the book of Numbers and you're going to want to go do something else. They had this memorized. These guys were the best. They were the best. And so in the room, you've got totally different sides of the spectrum represented. And honestly, probably looking at each other with disgust and anger in their eyes. And this is the environment as Jesus is about to get up and tell this story. So we start in verse 11. Jesus gets up and he says, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, if we go to the room, the Pharisees are getting excited at this point. They think they know what's coming. Jesus is about to get the sinners, right? He's about to tear into them. So we continue on here. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. So we have this son who's highly favored. He's in a great situation with his family. He asks his father for his inheritance early, which is just a horrible thing to do. His father freely gives it to him. He takes it. He abandons his family, goes and spends it on stupid, worthless stuff, and now finds himself in a pig pen. Now, if we go into the room here, the Pharisees are like foaming at the mouth here. They are excited about Jesus. They're excited. He's about to rip into the sinners. He's got them right where he wants them. And on the other side of the room, the tax collectors and the sinners, they're starting to to lean into this a little bit. They're they're wondering what is about to happen here. I can kind of relate to this guy in the story. He's abandoned. He's helpless. Let's see what Jesus has to say here. So we continue on in verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me as one of your hired men. So this kid has fallen so far. He's so abused at this point that he's getting ready to go back to his father and just tell him, I just wanna be one of your slaves. That's all that I want. Now, let me remind you, this is the same father that he disrespected by asking for his inheritance. The same father that he has abandoned. It's the same guy. And he's literally preparing a speech to just tell him, I just wanna be one of your slaves. 
If I can just be that, I'll be happy. Now, the sinners and tax collectors are like on the edge of their seat at this point because they wanna see how the father is gonna respond. They wanna see what this looks like. They wanna see what retribution really looks like. So we continue on in verse 20. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now, at this point, the tax collectors and the sinners have tears streaming down their face. They can all too well relate to the hunger, to the despair, to the shame. While Jesus is saying, just come back to the Father. Just come back to the Father. I mean, their hands over their head, literally bawling their eyes out as this overwhelming message of grace hits their souls. I'm telling you, you talk about undeserving, you talk about unmerited. These people represented it more than anyone in the course of history. And Jesus is saying, come back to the Father. Just come back to the Father. So as one side of the room is being torn apart by this message, the other side is seething. I mean, the Pharisees are ticked. You've got to be kidding me. We memorize our Bible, we fast, we pray, and these are the ones being shown favor? This is disgusting. And so Jesus then turns his attention over to them. He continues on in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. Come on, there's singing, there's dancing, there's restoration, there's forgiveness. And they're going, no, 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 no. I don't wanna go in there. So the father comes out and begins pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. I've fasted, I've prayed, I've memorized the Bible. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But We had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. So this is what's going on in the room. One half of the room is beginning to look to God for the first time, tears streaming down their faces as grace hits them harder than they've ever felt before. And Jesus is looking at the other side of the room going, let's celebrate with them. Come on, let's celebrate death to life, lost to found. Can we just celebrate with them? This is the environment, this is the context in which this story is being told. Now listen, I've read this many times. I've probably heard it taught even more. But I kind of always overlook something. And this may be something you saw from the first time you read it. That could very well be the case. But I always miss something. While the older son is in the back going through his self-righteous tirade, it says the father came out to him and pled with him. Now wait a second. I've always remembered that he came running out to the younger son. Uh, That's an image that lasts forever. I remember that. But he came running out to the older son as well. Now, wait a second. 
This is a father that has been nothing but loving to his sons. This is a father that could have tore apart his kids when they asked for their inheritance early and he freely gives it up. When the younger son abandons him and the family, he waits patiently on the porch for him to return. While the older son is out whining in the back, he goes out and he pleads with him. Why is the father doing all the work? He's the only good one amongst them. He's the only blameless one in the group. Why is he doing all the work? Why is he the one running around making sure everybody else is okay? Why? Grace. Unmerited, unearned favor for his kids. When you think about this story for what it really is, it's about grace. This is the message Jesus is trying to put into the heads of the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees in the room, this message of grace, because really what they deserved was condemnation and punishment and guilt. I mean, he should have been pointing his finger at them and yelling, and instead he's saying, what the Father has is not what you would expect. What the Father has is not what you're thinking. He has grace. Grace. Now, Here's the thing. This is how I think sometimes. I'm a human. I'm, I'm flawed. Sometimes I read something like this in the Bible and I think, you know what though? It's just a parable. It's a, it's a story. It's fabricated. It's, it's made up. I need something a little bit more than that. And so if you think like me, let me give you a little bit more. You think this is just a story. You ever heard of David? King David. He slays Goliath. He's infamous for his worship and for his charisma. You know what else he did? He stole another man's wife and had the husband killed so that he could have the girl to himself. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a sinner. He would have been in the group of sinners in Luke 15. And you know what God called him? The man after my own heart. God delighted in an adulterous murderer. Why? Grace. You ever heard of Paul, the apostle Paul that went on to write most of the New Testament? You know what he did before he was Paul? He was Saul and he persecuted the Christians all the way to the point of watching as they were murdered. He was a jerk. He was a murderer. He would have been in the group of Pharisees in Luke 15. And yet, you know what he went on to write years later? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. For it is by grace. You know what he realized? I am a jerk. I am a murderer. I'm a fool. And yet by God's grace, I can be saved. By God's grace. This isn't just a parable. It's a message of grace that no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, we serve a good God that is ready to pour his unmerited favor onto your life. We're talking about saving grace. If you can just grasp this for a second. We're talking about the kind that spares you from the punishment with which you deserve, the kind that allows you to then say, therefore, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Because let's just be blunt about it. You are either a sick and diseased sinner or you are a self-righteous fool looking down on other people. You're on one side of the room or the other. And yet, no matter where you're at, God is ready to come to you with open arms and pour out his grace on you. He's gonna remind you, my grace is sufficient for you. It's good enough. This, this is the concept, this is the idea that 
changed my life. I've never looked at God the same since I understood this. Listen, I grew up in, in church my whole life. Multiple times a week, we went to services, message after message, sermon after sermon, lesson after lesson. And unfortunately, what I grew up understanding about God was so off base that it actually pushed me away from God. I actually wanted to get away from God rather than lean into him. Because this is how I felt. I felt like all of of my faults were constantly being magnified. Every little mistake that I made pushed me further and further away from God. And at 22 years old, we went to a local church. And honestly, we were just trying to see what a successful church looks like. We were doing some recon, honestly. And this pastor gets up and begins to speak on God's grace. I'm telling you, it ripped me apart. I've never cried more in my life because I saw God for who he is for the first time. Because this is, for 22 years, this is what I thought. I thought that I would come to God and tell him that I've disobeyed him. And he would come running out to me, but he would put his finger in my chest, vocalize all the stupid, idiotic things that I've done, slap me across the face, and then walk away in disgust. That's who I served for 22 years. That's how I saw God. And when I realized, no, he's running out to wrap his arms around you, to pour his grace on you. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. And yet I'm ready to pour it on you. It broke me. It changed my life forever. So this has all culminated. This message has culminated so that I can just tell you this. You're a sinner. You're, you are a liar. You're broken and yet God still loves you. You've disobeyed him. You've turned your back on him. You've spoken ill of him, and yet he's patiently waiting for you to return to him. You've been unfaithful to your spouse. You've abused your power as a father. You've stolen money from people. You've actually pushed people away from God. You're a jerk at every opportunity that you can get. If we're being honest, you're a lying, cheating, foolish disaster, and yet you have already been outed on the cross. There's nothing that you could ever do that would shock God. In fact, every bit of it was coursing through the mind of Jesus as he was dying on the cross for it. The Bible says, for you are justified by grace. You know what justified means? It means the debt has already been paid. You've you've already been pardoned. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. And yet by God's grace, you can be redeemed. By God's grace, you can be redeemed saved. For the first time this year, um, I became a father. And it's been an awesome experience. I've enjoyed every bit of it. Um, Beautiful little girl. She just turned five months old not too long ago. It's been an awesome experience. All you parents know what I'm talking about. But if I'm being honest with you, she's five months old. She's, She's yet to do anything for me. She's yet to wash the car or pay a bill or clean the house. She's done nothing for me. And yet, come December 25th, I am going to pour out gifts on her like you wouldn't believe. She'll have no idea what's going on. She'll never remember it. And yet, I'm going to do it because I love her. Do you understand who you are in that analogy? Do you understand where you fit in this story? You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. And yet, God is going to pour it over your life if you would just allow him to. If I could get the musicians to come up and please stand with me. The Bible also says this. It says, let God's kindness lead us to repentance. 
That means that when we understand God's grace, his unmerited favor for us, that that should first lead us to repentance. That should allow us to realize who we really are and just come clean with God. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna just for a few minutes here, guys, just focus in. And I want, I want to give some time, I wanna give some space for you to talk to God in your own way, in your own words. But I just wanna first give you space to repent. When you realize for who you really are, it first should lead you to repentance. When you realize I'm in the room with the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees, I'm in that room. Just talk to God and tell him that you repent, that you're sorry for what you've done, that you need his forgiveness in order to to go another day. You need his forgiveness in order to live a life that he's called you to live. It says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As you just pray a prayer of repentance, just tell him, God, I believe what you've accomplished through Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection. I believe it. And through it, I know I can have life more abundantly. I'm not saying life is gonna be flowers and balloons and rose petals, but I'm saying you might have joy like you've never experienced before. You might have peace like you've never experienced before, even in the struggle. Just put all the distractions aside right now. I know we have so many things running through our heads right now, so much going on, I get it. But right now, I just wanna lean into God's grace.